HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. First, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. On today's show, I have a couple people. John Kernick, photographer, Allison Attenborough, food stylist, but there's so much more to you than just that, and Ryan Rice, her partner in crime, assistant, all-around good guy. Thank you all for being on the air. Thank Thank you. you. We're just going to kind of dive into uh, all these different facets of food photography styling, Um, maybe spin off a little bit in fracking as well, as we were (laughs) discussing prior to the show. But I just really wanted to start with background. Allison is, was, will always be a chef, food stylist, restaurant consultant, recipe developer, author, um, winner of cookbook awards. Um, (laughs) Your background in education was in cooking originally rather than styling. I um, went to college when I left school. My parents insisted that I went to college and I was originally going to go to art college. So I always had a keen interest in in arts and I was very interested in fashion and at one point I thought I was going to be a fashion designer yeah. but um, then I had to fight with the art teacher in the last year of school and my parents What was par- that fight about? 
I don't remember. I mean, I was yeah. sort of rebellious at that age, and I, you know, I rebelled. And then my parents wanted me, but to do an artistic sort of career, and so I decided to really rebel and say I'd work in a bank, which would yeah. be totally <laughs> awful. But um, I did that, and then they said, "No, you know, you're not doing that. You're going to college." And um, we found out about this home economics course, and uh, we think that would be great for you. And I think they thought that once I did the home economics course, I was going to go and cook for these bankers in the bank, yeah. and then I'd marry the banker, and I'd be sort of sorted out yeah but i wasn't really that person at that point anyway you want to know and uh but, john as well uh your background was in photography um but not necessarily in food though you had just divulged to me that you know at a young age you traveled around france eating your way all the way down to morocco <laughs> yeah no i think i sort of fell into um food photography really um i think from shooting a lot of travel stories um, I think uh, Frederica, who's at Food and Wine, saw something I shot in Travel and Leisure, and um, and that's led to me shooting food for them, and then everything else kind of followed from that, really. I think. But did you have a you know devout interest in food prior to? I've always enjoyed eating, but <laughs> you know, I've not. I, I I mean, I worked as a I worked had a lot of food related jobs as a as a student. I worked as a um, in a pizza shop, you know, making pizzas. And I was a I was a cook in a restaurant for um, two or three years as a student. So, but you know, you know, I've never been interested in creating recipes or anything like that. But I think um, being a stylist and working with a photographer that really loves food and likes to eat makes a huge difference. Yeah. And that actually is what makes John a great food photographer. It's because when people love to eat and they see food in that way and understand it, that, that visually comes through, yeah. I think. It, it's an interested perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. Plus, it's not only engaging, but you want to almost shoot faster so you can eat it sometimes, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan, you've been in restaurants forever. Yeah, since I was 14, my first job was in a restaurant. I sort of fell into it. It's like the what you did in St. Augustine. You either worked in a restaurant or uh, you probably didn't work. I don't know. <laughs> it seemed and, like we all did. And you've cooked in a couple of restaurants in New York? Yeah, I worked at the River Cafe and a couple other ones around town. Um, went out to California. worked at Luke Restaurant for Suzanne Goen. L- one of the coolest cookbooks in the last five years. Yeah, she's an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. That was a real pleasure to work for her excellent i actually just made a whole bunch of the guinness stout cakes well a riff on them um friends over at six point brewery do a big anniversary party every year and my girlfriend i don't i taste test more than i bake um made about 200 of their beer style cupcakes that's a lot of cupcakes yeah yeah (laughs) what's the frosting on that cupcake just regular you know uh, um butter you know confectioner sugar milk that's it. Straight, simple forwards. But it's orange because their branded logo is orange. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, simple, simple, but fantastic cookbook. We use that as a base recipe. And her romesco sauce is kind of like a staple in my back yeah, pocket. Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, so you all have this interest in food, but not necessarily this uh, professional direction towards it. Um, what was the turning point for all of you? <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> yeah. um, as far as going to food specifically, yeah, you said it was travel, but was there a specific travel story or p- food story that you know made you say, "I want to do more of this"? Ah, uh, for me, yeah. Um, when I was at college doing the home economics, 
I, I had to do lots of other things. Like I was really interested in the nutritional side of things and I was interested in the cooking side of things. And then I learned a lot of ba- about baking because you're studying the components and what makes the thing rise and what each of those ingredients do. So I got in- very interested in that. But because I was very rebellious and I was this girl that just liked to dress up and go to nightclubs <laughs> and was very interested in boys above all, the good thing was that um, I was chosen or they offered to me, do you want to go and be an intern for Time Life Books in the photo studio? And I was um, 18, 17, 18. And I really didn't realize the actual significance of that until maybe a few years yeah. ago because I was working on the books called The Time Life um, Good Cook with Richard Olney, with Jeremiah Towers. I mean, Elizabeth David would come to lunch. Yeah. Jane Grigson would come to lunch. And if people don't know these names, you know, research them now because this is the foundation for a lot of modern American cooking. And Richard Olney was, I mean, such a force and changed actually the eating habits of a lot of people in yeah. America. Um, so, I mean, I was so young, I didn't really understand that at the time, but I was so fortunate to be around those people at that time. And so I think that really changed my perspective of food and I learned so much. And those people are a lot older than me and they really took me in and they, you know, really showed me some different things. So for me, that was probably my turning point and really where I became really interested in food yeah. and it really um, took a turn. For so me it was then. more seeing that there was something past just the aesthetic, that there was a culture and mm-hmm. people that could live within that culture and perpetuate, mm-hmm. you know, an ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't just like seeing... Oh, that's the best looking cake I've ever seen. It was hearing these stories. And and I was working, you know, I would have to find the ingredients. And at that point in England, it pretty much was like boiled to death vegetables (laughs) and overcooked meat. And they were bringing this whole new thing even to England. And um, I would have to go and find carrots with tops on, which sounds like crazy. But I would have to get up at four in the morning and go to Nine Elms, this market, to get a carrot with a top on because you couldn't find that. Yeah. And you would have to get the lobsters shipped from France. They didn't have lobsters. We didn't have this whole system of food then. It literally was probably just what's local, um, but everything's already pre-trimmed. And it went to food style then was really different. Yeah. And it sounds like eating habits were different too. Like what kind of food did you grow up with, John? Um, a lot of frozen feed. <laughs> I think my mum's listening. Yeah. <laughs> I hope she is. I need a listener. <laughs> my mom listens. My girlfriend's mom's listen. Big on moms with this show. So. I, always, I always tease her. I say, if it's not frozen, it ain't food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, we begged to have frozen food because it was so kind of cool and new, yeah. I think, in a way. Yeah. We did too, actually. I used to love that baked Alaska. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with baked Alaska. I love baked not Alaska. Not baked Alaska. I think no, Arctic Roll. Yeah. Because in Nigel Slater's book, is. he yeah. mentions Arctic Roll. And it's weird, but um, he says, like, growing up, ours was the kind of family that had Arctic Roll. Yeah, exactly. And Arctic Roll was, like, this frozen ice Vienetta. cream that came in, like, a sort of roll, like a Swiss oh, yeah, roll, yeah, yeah. with, like, chocolate grated on the top so of it. So it's like Boucher Noel, but... It was like an every more of an everyday thing, but yeah. it was probably quite expensive. So it was sort of like a special occasion to have that. Yeah. So it was like you know to have the household that had the Arctic roll, you were kind of like a little <laughs> bit special. Yeah. It's sort of funny in suburban England. Did, Ryan, did you grow up in suburban England, and did you grow up with Arctic <laughs> roll? <laughs> nah, I never heard of it. <laughs> I grew up. I grew up in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, a little beach town. In my, um, it's kind of crazy how I got into food. I, I. Uh, sort of works because my dad's an artist and the whole idea of working with your hands for a profession was just kind of felt right for me my family had a um on my mom's side my grandfather had an italian restaurant so 
when I was growing up, I, I loved going in there and eating. And like John, one of my favorite things to do is to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had a crazy idea when I was 16. I, I wanted to be an environmentalist, you know, and I wanted to, I had no idea what I would do. So I tried to go to college and I, I was no good at it, you know, with the science and math. And I just realized that possibly I could do both. I could cook and be an environmentalist. And that's, that's how I ended up where I am today, you know, and we might be doing you know food styling you might you might not realize but the ingredients that we source are all from the farmer's market and we're totally dedicated to where they come from and everything behind what you see in the magazine is we try every day you know yeah you know it's funny because i don't think a lot of people understand the the morality and ethos and ethics of the people behind the picture um there's a lot of coverage and you know imagery of the farmers and farm to table and you know the chef's using this wonderful produce but it's also all the people that help develop and test and you know there's an inherent goodness uh, that they want to project on the page and you all subscribe to that mm-hmm. um there are rules that allison has or so she was telling me if you'd like to <laughs> recite a couple and these aren't like I rules, rules to live but yeah <laughs> go ahead ryan yeah but uh, ryan he knows that some of those things one one of our biggest rules is uh, no plastic bags like if we go out shopping for ingredients we bring our own bags and uh, we kind of get mad at other people that use them. Just, it just seems so wasteful. And I don't know if you've ever been to the beach and seen a plastic bag wash up. And that's how yeah. I actually found out about it. That's what made me more militant about the plastic bag and the, you know, carrying your, plas- your, pa- your um, recycled bag or your cloth bag. Was that There's a, um, a woman we work with at New York Magazine, Gillian Duffy. And she's a big foodie, and so we learnt it from a foodie. But she sails every summer, and she said in Europe now, whenever you're sailing, like literally the plastic bags are coming off from the land, for, you know, from below or whatever, yeah. and they're floating all around. And she said you get plastic wherever Oof. you sail now. Yeah. And she said you cannot use a plastic bag. So she made me more militant. I have to <laughs> it's say like that about same that. visualization of you know cutting up the six pack containers, you mm-hmm. know, oh, because yeah. there were those pictures of seals and fish getting stuck in them in like the and Ryan actually has his own thing that he's he's very militant about, which, which is to never drink out of the plastic bottle of water. Oh, and he that. always drinks the yeah. tap water. Yeah, such a scam. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like the biggest scam in the world right oh, yeah. now. You know, getting a Fiji Fiji water from the other side of the planet in the thickest plastic bottle possible. And it's, it's really just rainwater. Right here in New York, we have amazing water right out of the tap. Yeah, I don't know if I should admit this, but I drink out of the tap like directly, like it's a little, you know, fountain at the school sometimes. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) I show my cat how it's done. Yeah, yeah. John carries his bottle as well. His own private bottle. Yeah, been trying to. Actually, from working with um, Andrew Rusing, she's really big on. Yeah, you know, she doesn't use um, um, any bottled water in the restaurant, and she has a um, a way of um, you know putting gas into the water. What do you call that? Uh, Carbonator. Yeah. And this is Andrea Roosing. Andrea Roosing um, from Lantern in, North, in Chapel Hill, North yeah, Carolina. Which uh, John's working on this book. And I actually it's met... actually finished already. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, I, I met John at uh, kind of a little soiree she had in New York introducing the book, which comes out this spring. Yeah. Correct? Uh, and Andrea's food, uh, the book's called Cooking in the Moment. Correct? And you can feel the kind of not just whimsical, but light and uh, very you know ephemeral approach to her. Yeah. food and her touch and I guess I wasn't trying to plug the book yeah <laughs> no you That's don't have thing. to once people see this it will plug itself exactly I mean, there you go yeah but no working with her um you know I, I 
I was one of those people that would just stop at the gas station and buy a big litre bottle of energy. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it only travelled 2,000 miles. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, working with her, I started being guilty. So yeah, that's when the, the water container came out, the metal, you know, can. It's just as easy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's funny to see you saying traveling around, stopping at gas stations, that there is this correlation between travel and food, like going from wanting to explore more than just your local system and seeing that there are different systems that operate in a similar fashion and trying to replicate that wherever you go, keeping it sustainable, keeping it real, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, it perpetuates. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then come on back, talk a little bit about the environmental uh, aspects of food styling and photography you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com we'll be right back back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with food photographer John Koernick, food stylist, House Nadenborough, and all-around good guy, as I said before, Ryan Rice. Um, we were kind of talking about, you know, first their backgrounds and influences and traveling and getting into food, but then kind of ended on this environmental note that I think we should explore a little bit more. Um, it wasn't necessarily a question I had you know, uh, prior to having you in the studio, but right before we entered, fracking was brought up. A lot of people, I don't think, know what it is, and if anyone would like to expand on that idea. I just found out about it because I went to see a movie called Gasland, um, which uh, a friend sent me to at NYU, and it's um, about fracking, which is basically drilling for natural gas, which is going to be pitched as this sort of alternative energy um, idea, but the thing about it is, it once you watch this sh- this movie, which is now actually up, up for an Oscar, um, it's actually the impact of this fracking is that it destroys the water supply. It's not and just it's not just drilling though, is it? It's drilling no. down into shale and slate and, back and yeah. smashing. Yeah, you're around, smashing right? right through the uh, sort of surface, way way down. And so you don't only get the impact of that, you're going to get the impact of... It requires a ton, like loads and loads of water just to um, work 
you know, to cool it down or whatever it has to do. But the but the impact it has on these poor people who live around it, they come into the small towns and predominantly in Texas, in Colorado, they've been doing it for more than 10 years. And then you see the results of it, which are that these poor people, their water supply is completely destroyed. Um, there's, you know, I think it's more than 500 chemicals have to go down into the earth. And within... And, and we're in the gas to, you know, to get it to go to work. But um, I think these poor people, their whole water supply is destroyed and they, can, they see them actually light their faucets on fire. Oof. And then the water in the surrounding areas, the streams and stuff, they obviously don't have to um, follow a lot of guidelines, the safety yeah. guidelines, um, which you also need to look into. But you need to see the movie because it's quite complicated. Yeah. But um, basically what I gained from seeing this movie is that this is about to happen upstate in New York, which will affect all of us. Because we have this incredible infrastructure that um, our water comes from the Catskills. It was created 100 years ago, and it's the most efficient, most clean water in the whole of America. And if they do the, the fracking up there, which Pennsylvania has 100% approved, but New York hasn't, because people in New York have actually thought about this, but then all of this water supply will change. We won't have this beautiful, clean water. And in terms of the food and our food supply, obviously what's going to happen is it's going to alter the whole farming. And maybe forced to buy bottled water, yeah. you know, because there is no That's a good point. You know, necessary yeah. alternative. Um, but, I mean... Recipe-wise, uh, I want to talk about food for a sec. Baking, can that exist without water? Um, I mean, stocks, soups, uh, sodas, drinks. I mean... No, water's in... I mean, our body is made of yeah, water, it's isn't it? elemental. It's in everything. Yeah. It's an elemental starting point. And they say that the next crisis will be water rather than oil, actually. It's yeah. going to be the next crisis for us all. But so uh, see the movie Gasland, read up about fracking, and back to food. <laughs> that was so, your little PSA. Um, I want to talk a little more about some of the cookbooks that you've worked on, John. Uh, Salt to Taste with Marco Canora and a great American cook with Jonathan Waxman, who are two fantastic New York chefs um, and you know fountainheads of what they do. Uh, how did those books differ, and how did those books even evolve? I think the um, the Marco Canora book evolved from working with him on a food and wine project in Italy. Um, he had a um, little c- cooking school that he did with his. Um, <laughs> I was going to say something inside here. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he had a cooking school with his um, with his mother in Italy. Um, so we went there and photographed that, and then he, he you know he had the book project and asked if I'd um, photograph it for him. Yeah. I remember that spread. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so that, that was. You know, he had a lot of strong ideas too about um, things that he liked, inspiration that he had. Um, yeah, no, it was, that was a, it. Was a good project. Yeah, he's very, very enthusiastic too. Yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. He's he's really a bulldog, but with. you know, definitely in the right vein. Yeah, you know? yeah, and and Jonathan Waxman's similar story. We did a story for um, Gourmet magazine, and um, and then the. You know, shooting his book sort of evolved from that. So, do you see a lot of projects uh, spiral from, uh, you know, magazine assignments into books, or were these your first two? Um, no, and, th- and then uh, um, Andrea Reesing too. It's the same thing. Yeah. The story with her, and um, and then the book project came after that. So, no, it's. I think I think it's a, it's an obvious progression. If you know, as a chef, if you worked with a photographer and you like the results, 
um, you know, to then hire them to do a book. Yeah. Does it make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, Alison, do you find a lot of your work kind of flows that way, too? Because um, I want to go back to the book that you authored uh, right. with Jamie Kim, uh, The Cooking for Friends with William Sonoma. Priorly, you had done a ton of William Sonoma's books. I'd worked, yeah, I'd worked on a lot of their books, and they kind of knew that I had a sense, not just about the food, but that I was also had a sense about style and had very specific ideas about that. Um, so I think they thought it would be a great idea to sort of team up someone who had a strong visual sense as well as the food sense and try to do something a little bit different for them. Yeah. Um, and they came with little guidelines and they wanted to do things four ways which actually I think they sort of got the idea from Food and Wine because Food and Wine used to do these recipes where they tried the same recipe and they would alter it and do it the four ways so yeah they came to me and that was a really fun it's really fun to work on your own project with your own vision you know that did have perimeters because William Sonoma is a very specific customer Um, and I think if it were me it would have been a little bit like looser and I have a little bit more of my personality within that but it definitely was a great experience and um, I got to develop a lot of recipes put in a lot of my own personal style and it was really fun to work on yeah speaking of your kind of own vision of things you've worked a lot with Food and Wine magazine yeah Um, do you feel like you get to impart your own vision uh, in those stories sometimes yeah yeah. I mean it was fun John and I did one once which was a colour story and then we were able to kind of alter recipes a little bit and uh, come up with more visual ideas and I like doing that kind of thing what was the colour story that was um was that the wine it was one, John? Two, two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I can't remember if it was the wine one. I think it was we a colour. You did color. a nice one with um, Con too. Yeah, I did another one with Con. We did one. One was a wine pairing from white. I think that was the one with Con, oh, yeah, white I to red. That, yeah. And then they worked and developed these recipes that went with the different wines, yeah. but then where they were in this sort of situation of the colour, you know, background. Yeah. And then the one with John was literally about the colour of the food. Yeah. So it was having fun having challenges like eggplant and doing it on purple, and eggplant's quite hard to shoot. And there were some fun things, and then I came yeah. up with the purple basil so you get that colour in. So that was a fun project. And so, so how often do you collaborate with the other creative, like the stylist and the photographer, you know, talk prior to the magazine approaching them? For I the think when Food & Wine have a big well story like that, we all met and we came up with our own ideas and we all collaborated. And I think, um, I mean, Food & Wine for me has been a great magazine to work on because... Um, you're dealing with very good high quality food and recipes from really interesting people and very smart chefs and they've got their team of testers at food and wine so there's um that's been a really great experience and they're doing this thing right now this wine show which they're involved with and for me i'm doing a totally different thing where i get more involved with dealing with the chefs directly and um sort of getting them to do the food on the show and that's been a really different challenge yeah, for me. I've always wondered how that differed uh, and this is a two part question because how does you know 2D translate into television um, and John have you ever shot video? Um, it's becoming more I've, I've done a few video projects for um, Food and Wine for the iPad and also for Martha Stewart um, we, we did a community garden story last year which is coming out in the summer I think where we interviewed a bunch of um, um, people who have this community garden in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of on-camera interviewing yeah. and, um, you know, different stuff like that for the iPad. Um, but not not for, TV, not, for um, not for TV, I don't think. Yeah, and how has TV kind of affected your aesthetic? How has, you know, motion 
Well, I worked on a lot of film, actually, when I lived in L.A. So I worked on the Titanic. I worked on this movie called Wild Wild West. And I'd done, actually, a little bit of costume on a film called The Crossing Guard. But I actually... um, I didn't really enjoy the process so much of film, in a way, because the schedule changes a lot. And um, the food has to be... you know, it's quite static a lot of the time, and you're or you're doing hundreds of takes. Like on the Titanic, sometimes you did sixty takes. Yeah. So it's a little bit like why I didn't really like catering because you're constantly redoing the same thing. And for me, I'm actually like to move on and do things quite fast and have a bit of a slow sort of attention span in a certain way. Yeah. And the thing about TV, it's very instant. Again, you might have to do lots of takes. But what's interesting about this wine show is I'm actually more of a prop stylist, and then I help the chef like maybe come up with what can be finger food that goes in the set so it's a little bit more of being like a sort of almost like a PR person or sort of networking with people and being more chatty which is a bit fun when you're normally in the kitchen with you know your assistant like with Ryan and I we're just together on our own in the kitchen and some jobs we're collaborating with the photographer and with the stylist and some we're really literally just cooking yeah and so it's kind of nice to have this um social aspect of meeting people and doing that within the job so it's a nice yeah. balance so you're just saying you're tired of just hanging out with ryan all the time no <laughs> how could i ever <laughs> um client wise too uh you do a lot of editorial but you also do ad how do those clients differ and who have you been working with lately um i've been working um We've been doing, should I say, the ad client? Is that, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We've, been, we've been actually working on a project which was to, with Lean Cuisine to actually try to loosen their product, make yeah. it more appealing because they're finding that there's, it's very staid advertising in America for food, a lot of it. So they're trying to make it a little bit more sort of young and youthful and a little bit more approachable, I think, and trying to get those customers. And I think that this whole like local and the organic movement and the look of more organic things is filtering into advertising yeah. so they have to be aware about that so that was one of the projects my favorite thing i work on is probably um doing drinks and gray goose and that's my passion to do those because it's like it's more it's quite challenging when you're working with the real ice and doing the tv for that is really challenging what's what's the challenge I mean, well the challenge when you're doing the tv particularly is you you've got this camera and it's costing a lot of money to do those commercials and they want it all real gray goose so you've got this ice like melting and you're running around trying to yeah you know get the right looking cube and whether it's completely clear or whether it's got texture to that cube and there's lots of little, there's lots of tricks within that and spraying the glasses and we actually did do coca-cola in florida and it's funny because um they wanted this food within that ad but they're not used to doing food so they almost sort of forgot the food and it's all <laughs> left till the end yeah. and like it's just sort of interesting yeah i think but, it's one one thing that people don't realize when they watch movies and tv shows that you know there's someone behind all the food that you see there someone's had to create that i think i mean even i until recently didn't really occur to me that yeah <laughs> someone actually did all, did all that stuff i think when susan did um Gina, oh Gina, yeah you know yeah which is a big food one but yeah it's, it's, but i also find it fascinating that liquid is almost that much harder subject to deal with both you know styling and and photography too sometimes like keeping it real too so it looks <clears throat> you know I worked with someone once who sprayed the outside of a glass with some sort of oil to make it look like it was had condensation it's on the glass. It's yeah. glycerin and water, But then yeah. it was above the, the line of the liquid, so it looked bizarre. So then he's trying to wipe it off with the, you know. And then the ice cube was strange. I said, well, 
It was a fake ice cube. So <laughs> how, about, how about redoing it? The one with the real, fly in it. He's so a real ice cube. Yeah. Yeah. No, you see, we're like the natural crowd that yeah. make it all like quite sort of natural. So it's quite funny. Yeah. Sometimes we have these challenges where you're using, you're doing it all in because it has to sit there in the sort of like Probably bright light or hot lights. Yeah. Plus, if you got yeah. a grey goose, you want to get a drink afterwards. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually my job. <laughs> yeah. Not a bad gig to have. Hot lights. I keep on hearing this. How often are hot lights used on sets versus, uh, you know, strobes and stuff? What is a hot light? A hot exactly? light is like a... Tungsten. Inc- yeah, tungsten. Incandes- so it actually emits a little bit of heat. Oh. Um, do you work with lights that do that or do you work with strobes that don't? Well, John would lights. know. You, John doesn't yeah. use lights, but you sometimes have to for advertising, no? I mean, if I... Very rarely I use strobe over hot lights just because it's easier to balance it with daylight. Yeah. I mean, nine times out of ten, I'll just use daylight. Yeah. We sometimes do work with lights. I mean, we work with... Um, and with TV, you have to use hot lights, don't you? Yeah, with TV, it's all hot lights. And then I feel like if there's a lot of like st- uh, still-life photographers we work with that do more like product and fashion. Yeah. And we work with some amazing people that do that. Um and for example we were doing a double tree ad with um, a photographer called Alain Rubin and he would use he's using lights and I think those would be considered hot lights yeah. and, and strobe I guess right would they John I think so right I mean they're set lights so yeah. they are yeah and yeah. so that's different I mean with cookies it's easy it's not a problem sometimes when you're doing like salads and things like that they're obviously going to wilt faster yeah so you've got to have everything ready to switch out and it's in ice, ice baths and stuff because how real is food styling? I mean, I, I've asked this question to a couple other stylists before, and people outside of the industry think that you're just putting a whole bunch of fake stuff on a plate. No, I think actually this is a misconception. I think in the 80s when I started assisting um, and working, say, for um, when I did the Good Cook, that was all done for real. And I think but advertising and things that in 10 years ago, and when I first started assisting in America and worked on Bon Appetit magazine, everything was lit. And everything had to sit there for a long time. And all the advertising was definitely, definitely faked. But I think there's um, two things that happened, and John would know more about this, but the format of photography, because they could shoot on a smaller camera and they didn't need to use lights and they could shoot much faster, then the food became much more about being real. And all our food and wine shoots, we eat that food, all of it. And most editorial shoots that we do now, we eat all the food and we buy good quality ingredients so it's not wasted so we do eat it and we share it out and take it home and everything is 100% edible yeah even, um, even before I brought up that I f- you know feel like I myself am a sustainable food photographer because I subscribe to that Ryan had said well we're sustainable food stylists so but not everybody yeah, is I yeah. have to say so you yeah. know we that is something that we care about and are into yeah. so obviously that somehow filters down into our work yeah and it shows in the aesthetic too by the quality of ingredients and you know uh Oh, so it's it's limiting in its factor of how much you buy. So sometimes it's that whimsical, you know, chaos theory of, well, all we have are these basil bushes and all we have are, you know, these ingredients to work with. And we have to do our best with that. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that same mentality almost of, you know, working with what you have rather than extending to something that's unnatural. Yeah. I, I think it definitely transcends it the way it looks. You know, if you're using horrible ingredients, you feel horrible when you're working with them and then. It may not look as beautiful as, you know, if you have the fresh farmer's market arugula from your favorite farmer and everybody's smiling and having a good time. Yeah. 
the feeling exudes you know it shows itself on the page and sometimes when you are working on advertising i mean it is difficult because it's not necessarily what you believe in yeah and it's difficult to be 100 percent there for that sometimes yeah i mean what do you think john do you just don't um worry about that (laughs) i try not to i try not to worry about the money oh yeah <laughs> Should I get too ethical about it? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the majority of the projects you work on, and like you were saying before, how Andrea Rusing really changed your, you know, concept of even water itself. It, Allison made a very valid point that one person can make a difference. No, it's true. It's all it takes. Yeah, and no, because people say to you, what you know, what what's the point of you doing that? What's the point? You know. It's just you. What good is that going to do in the big picture? But if everyone thinks like that, you know, it had an influence on John, like Ryan had an influence on me with my plastic bottles, because even though I'm carrying my cloth bag, I'm still drinking plastic bottles yeah. of water. You know, and we all have our little things that we're into and focus on. Yeah, but one person at a time, one step at a time, you know, towards a better planet and... Guilt-free planet. <laughs> greater food uh, for all. Um, thank you all for being on the show. This was jam-packed, informative, we're going to have a fracking show because of this. I promise you that. Very right. good. Um, Thanks. John Kernick, Alison Attenborough, Ryan Rice. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Thanks to our sponsor, Whole Food, executive producer, Jack Insley. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turco. Ciao. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhoffer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.